This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, confronting stigma. Ideas about why we judge certain behaviors and conditions and how those judgments can make it all the more difficult to honestly talk about them or even deal with them in a constructive way, like how we deal with drug addiction. You know, I one of the most shocking things I learned in my research was that I had completely misunderstood what I thought I'd seen right in front of me. So I'd been watching people I love with addiction problems since I was a child. And I thought I understood why it had happened. This is journalist Johan Hari. A few years ago, he wrote a book about drug addiction and the war on drugs called Chasing the Scream. So if you'd said to me, you know, when I started doing the research, what causes, let's say, heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were an idiot. I would have said, well, obviously, Guy, heroin causes heroin addiction. That's, yeah. The clue is in the name, right? right. Yeah. We think if we seized 20 people off the street and like a villain in a Saw movie, we forcibly injected them all with heroin every day for a month, at the end of that month, they'd all have an addiction problem for the obvious reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to kind of desperately physically need. And that's what addiction is, right? That's, I thought what, I'd seen that's that what we all assume, right? You, you take heroin for 20 days, you're probably going to be addicted. Exactly. And, and I only began to understand what's really going on and, in fact, what had gone on in my own family when I went and met an incredible professor called Bruce Alexander in Vancouver. Hmm. And Professor Alexander explained to me, this theory of addiction that I had in my head, that it's caused by the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. But Professor Alexander was looking at these experiments in the 70s and he had this kind of realisation. Wait a minute. We put the rat alone in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except take these drugs. Yeah. <laughs> what would happen, he thought, if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park and it's basically heaven for rats, Right. They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of grain, they've got loads of tunnels to scamper around, they can have loads of sex. And they've got uh, both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. None of them ever used it compulsively. Hmm. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when their lives are bad to none when their lives are good and they have the things that make life meaningful for rats. Now, even though this study in the 1970s was just for rats, it turns out there was a similar scenario playing out for humans at the exact same time. Johan Hari picks up that story from the TED stage. It was called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of all American troops were using loads of heroin. And uh, if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, my God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends. It made total sense. Now, those soldiers who were using loads of heroin were followed home. The archives of general psychiatry did a really detailed study. And what happened to them? It turns out they didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped. Now, if you believe the story about chemical hooks, that makes absolutely no sense. But Professor Alexander began to think there might be a different story about addiction. He said, what if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment? Looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who said, maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Human beings have a natural and innate need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now, that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis. 
but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. But, but I mean, here's the thing, Johan. I mean, there are people who come from stable backgrounds, who who don't have difficult external conditions in their lives, and you know, who don't have that single rat in a cage situation, um, and they still become addicts. I mean, that happens. It's not totally yeah. un- uncommon. So I discussed this with lots of the experts and scientists I spoke to, and as I spoke to them and assimilated what they found in their research, I began to think of this analogy. So if you read kind of early feminist texts from the 60s, like Betty Friedan, there's a recurring thing that happens recurring scene where a housewife in the 1950s will go to her doctor and she'd say something like, doctor, there's something terribly wrong with me Mm. because I've got everything a woman could possibly want. I've got a husband who doesn't beat me. I've got a washing machine. I've got two kids and I've got a car, but I still feel terrible. Mm. Now, if we could go back in time and speak to those women, what we would say is, wait, you've got everything you could possibly want by the standards of the culture, but the standards of the culture are just wrong. You need much more than this. And I think in the same way, when I speak to people who say, what you're saying can't be right because I had everything I could want and yet I still felt profoundly terrible and became addicted, Hmm. are their psychological needs actually being met? Do they feel that their life is meaningful, that they are connected to deep meaning? Do they feel they belong? If you actually talk about those questions, which are much more important than whether you've got money, actually I think it demonstrates that their values, that they didn't have the things people want. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Now, to be clear, Johan isn't saying there's absolutely no biological basis for addiction. But what he is saying is that an environment steeped in shame and stigma can make it so much easier for people to turn to drugs. In the run-up to the 2016 election, I was writing about some people who were doing a get-out-the-vote work, and we were on this long street in a place called Slavic City in Cleveland, and it was one of those streets where a third of the houses had been demolished, a third had been abandoned, and a third still had people living in them. Huge addiction problems, as you could just see walking around. And we knocked on one door, and there was a woman, I don't know if she had an addiction problem, but I strongly suspect she did. And we were talking, and she was actually very articulate, she was very angry, and she said something that has absolutely haunted me. She was talking about what the area used to be like, how everything that made the area make sense, the work, the sense of regularity, the sense of the future was all gone. And she was trying to describe what the area used to be like. And she meant to say, when I was young. What she actually said is, when I was alive. And I really reeled back. And I understood why this woman was so angry, and I understand why people who feel like that, when I was alive, right? When the things that made sense, when there was a community, when there was a sense of the future. If you take those things away from people, they will be in terrible despair. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And every year, they tried the American way more and more. They punished people and stigmatized them and shamed them more. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, look, we can't go on with a country where we're having ever more people becoming heroin addicts. And they saw a panel led by an amazing man called Dr. Huao Gulao to look at all this new evidence. And they came back and they said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack, but take all the money we used to spend on cutting addicts off, on disconnecting them, and spend it instead on reconnecting them with the society. And that's not really what we think of as drug treatment in the United States and Britain. So they do do residential rehab, they do do psychological therapy that does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was the complete opposite of what we do. A massive program of job creation for addicts and microloans for addicts to set up small businesses. So say you used to be a mechanic. When you're ready, they go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. And when I went and met the addicts in Portugal, it was fascinating. What they said is, as they rediscovered purpose, they rediscovered bonds and relationships with the wider society. It'll be 15 years this year since that experiment began, and the results are in. Injecting drug use is down in Portugal, according to the British Journal of Criminology, by 50%. Addiction in every study is significantly down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back to the old system. It's amazing to me like that so at a certain point, Portugal was looking at their problem and they said, stigmatizing this is not working. 
all of the evidence has shown that that does not work. But if everybody knows this, I mean, that evidence is available to you and me, to our political leaders. It's available to societies all around the world. So what what's the problem? I mean, why do most of us continue to treat addiction in the way we do? I think it's a, a few things. One is people like me haven't done a good enough job of explaining what the alternatives mean. So when you talk about decriminalization or legalization, which happened in Switzerland of heroin with incredible results I can tell you about, what people think we're saying is there should be, you know, a heroin aisle in your local CVS and, you know, we want kids to use heroin and, you know, which of course literally nobody wants. Right. Um, so we need to do a much better job of communicating what we're actually in favor of. And, you know, Switzerland is a great example. Switzerland at the same time as Portugal had this huge heroin problem. They tried a slightly different approach. They got an incredible female president called Ruth Dreyfus and Ruth explained to Swiss people when you hear the idea of legalizing heroin, what you picture is anarchy and chaos. What we have now is anarchy and chaos. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users all in the dark, all filled with violence and disease. Hmm. Legalization is the way we restore order to this chaos. So what they did is they, if you had a heroin problem, you're assigned to a heroin clinic. I spent a load of time in the one in Geneva, which by the way, Ruth Dreyfus lives opposite, which I think tells you something. And you're assigned to this clinic you go in, you're given your heroin there, you can't take it out with you, you're watched by a nurse as you use it, and then you leave to go to your job because you're given loads of support to turn your life around. The results in Switzerland have been extraordinary. There have been zero deaths on overdose on the legal heroin programme since it began more than 15 years ago. I just want to repeat that. Literally nobody has died on the legal heroin programme. The United States, your listeners don't need me to tell you, has had somewhat different outcomes. More people have died uh, of heroin overdoses and opioid overdoses since you and I started talking in this conversation, Guy, than have died in the last 15 years wow. in Switzerland. So at some point we have to look at, you know, we all have anger about addiction and depression. At some point we have to look at the results. Policies based on stigma and shame kill people. They are deadly. And policies based on love and compassion work much more effective. There's no silver bullet. There are still problems in Portugal and Switzerland, but their lives get better. For a hundred years now, we have been singing war songs about people with addiction problems. We should have been singing love songs to them all along. Journalist Johan Hari. His most recent book is called Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about stigma. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Subaru, whose love promise is a dedication to supporting communities. For Tucson retailer Rocky Di Cristofano, that just makes sense. It's simple in concept that we're trying to be involved and make the place we live a better place. And everybody goes to work knowing that this is a part of what we do at Tucson Subaru. To learn more about the Subaru commitment to its customers and communities, visit Subaru.com slash love dash promise. Thanks also to Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. And one more quick thing before we get back to the show. I want to let you know that Invisibilia, NPR's show about the invisible forces shaping our behavior, is back on March 9th with a new season. They're taking on Russian hacking, reality TV, the Me Too movement, and much more. You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, Confronting Stigma. 
ideas about why we judge or cast aside certain behaviors or choices or even conditions, like depression. Depression, anxiety, mental illness, none of that was talked about in my house. This is Nikki Weber-Allen. She's a filmmaker who also runs a nonprofit that works to end the stigma around mental health, particularly among people of color. And I think that that is why I was under the impression when I struggled, first was diagnosed with it, that, you know, this was just something that was unique to me hmm. and that this was just my own weakness. Most people in the black community believe that that's what it is. So much of it is, like it, particularly if you're from more of a disadvantaged background, where you're trying to figure out how to pay the bills, how are you going to put food on the table, the last thing you have time for in your mind is self-care. It's absolutely seen as a luxury. I think another part of it, though, is our complex history in this country coming from slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, institutionalized racism. We pride ourselves on our strength and our mental toughness and our resilience. That's what's gotten us through and what's helped us to achieve you know, so many things that we've accomplished over the last 200 years. So for us to not have that, you know, we can't not have that. You know what I mean? So it was really distressing for me when I first found out and I felt really alone, like I had let the family down um, and that I needed to just kind of get over this and tough it out on my own. But it wasn't getting better on my own. At the time, Nikki was a successful TV producer. She'd even won two Emmys for her work. So on the outside, it seemed like everything was fine. But on the inside, it felt like anything but. It was like, I remember what it was like to be happy when I was younger. And I'd gotten to the point, I think in my, by 30, I was to the point where I was like, well, I guess that's just something that you know, kids are happy, but once you get older and you get a job, you're just never going to be as happy again as you were when you were young. Hmm. And I still didn't realize that was the depression talking, you know? So it wasn't until I went to the doctor and the doctor suggested to me, you know what? A lot of your symptoms sound like they're related to anxiety and perhaps depression. I totally pushed back on him um, because that's not something that happens to me. That happens to other people. And I had in my head, you know, that narrative that people with mental illness, those are the people you see standing on the corner and talking to themselves. That's not me holding down a job and a good job. And it just didn't jive with what I knew mental illness to look like. But still, at least I did go to the therapist. But because of the stigma, I didn't talk about it. I just went to therapy on my own and, and didn't share it with anyone, not even anyone in the family. But that all changed one day when Nikki learned that someone else in her family had silently been suffering from depression. Nikki Weber-Allen picks up the story from the TED stage. On July 4th, 2013, my world came crashing in on me. That was the day I got a phone call from my mom telling me that my 22-year-old nephew, Paul, had ended his life after years of battling depression and anxiety. There are no words that can describe the devastation I felt. Paul and I were very close, but I had no idea he was in so much pain. Neither one of us had ever talked to the other about our struggles. The shame and stigma kept us both silent. He had been struggling uh, with depression and anxiety for a few years. I don't know exactly how long because we never actually talked about it. So, you know, in the same family, we were very close because of the shame and stigma, I was afraid to talk to him. I, I wanted to be the cool aunt, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't want him to think that something was wrong with me. So I never—I was never open with him about it. About your own depression. About my own depression. And then it wasn't until after he died from suicide uh, that I learned about his depression. Now, he had told his parents, but he had asked his parents to keep it quiet and not share it with the rest of the family because he didn't want people to think that he was weak. He was ashamed. He was ashamed. And so that just broke my heart. After that happened, I just thought, you know what, this is something that I have to change. I have to figure out a way to change this, so to open up these conversations about it. For black Americans, 
Stressors like racism and socioeconomic disparities put them at a 20% greater risk of developing a mental disorder. Yet they seek mental health services at about half the rate of white Americans. One reason is the stigma, with 63% of black Americans mistaking depression for a weakness. Sadly, the suicide rate among black children has doubled in the past 20 years. Armed with this information, I made a decision. I wasn't going to be silent anymore. With my family's blessing, I would share our story in hopes of sparking a national conversation. A friend, Kelly Pierre-Lewis, said, being strong is killing us. She's right. We have got to retire those tired old narratives of the strong black woman and the super-masculine black man who, no matter how many times they get knocked down, just shake it off and soldier on. Having feelings isn't a sign of weakness. Feelings mean we're human. And when we deny our humanity, it leaves us feeling empty inside, searching for ways to self-medicate in order to fill the void. These days, I share my story openly, and I ask others to share theirs too. I believe that's what it takes to help people who may be suffering in silence to know that they are not alone. It's it's a little bit like one of the one of the sort of tenets of of treating fear is exposure, right? Like cognitive behavioral therapy, they talk about exposure. So people who have anxiety, they'll just force themselves to stand up in front of the audiences and speak and do speak and do, do a TED talk, right? <laughs> and I mean, it, it's the idea that if you are depressed and if you keep it hidden and closed, it makes total sense that it would get worse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And But if you talk about it, which is like this huge obstacle for so many of us, it actually is the pathway to... Absolutely. The healing, right? Yeah, shine a light on it and own it because you find that you're not alone. Since I've been really open, I can't tell you how many friends have reached out to me. Family friends have reached out and said, I've always struggled. I've been struggling for 20 years. I just never talked about it. Or remember how we said Uncle Butchie died from cancer? Well, actually, it was suicide. We just didn't want to talk about it. Like, this... Time and time again, I can honestly say there's not a week that goes by that I don't hear from someone I know personally or someone who reaches out to me because they saw the TED Talk to tell me about their own experience. I will always regret that I couldn't be there for my nephew. But my sincerest hope is that I can inspire others with the lesson that I've learned. Life is beautiful. Sometimes it's messy, and it's always unpredictable. But it will all be okay when you have your support system to help you through it. I hope that if your burden gets too heavy, you'll ask for a hand, too. Thank you. Nikki Weber-Allen. She's a TV and film producer, and she also runs the I Live For Foundation, which works to end the stigma around mental health. You can see her full talk at TED.com. When you were in high school, were you out and open? We were raised Pentecostal. So it was, it was a little difficult to be out because, you know, every Sunday it's fire and brimstone. This is Arik Hartman. He grew up in rural Arizona, going to church every Sunday with his family. Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> uh, the longest time I thought I would just burn in hell forever had I come out, or my dad would kill me. Um, but I decided to come out when I was 16. And when Arik told his parents he was gay, it didn't go over too well. It could have gone worse. But a, a little fun fact, when I did come out, my dad tried to demonically exercise me. Wow. He invited the pastor and some friends over to kind of ambush me after school, and that was... What, did, what, what, what happened? What did, they, what did he do? Well, luckily, my mom had come home early from work, and as I'm watching, they're kind of rushing out of the house with my mom <laughs> screaming and threatening to shoot them, you know, brandishing a gun. It was... Wow. That was exciting. 
after that, Arik focused on getting away from home. So in 2012, he enrolled in college at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. My friend group in college was just, you know, a, a mix of straight people, gay people, everyone on the spectrum, and a lot of people who had backgrounds that were reflective of mine, you know, growing up uh, in a religious household, which is common in the South, growing up um, with parents who might not accept you, with families that might not accept you. So I was able to, like, I felt like I had made the right choice after talking to other people with similar backgrounds. So Arik had escaped the stigma of being gay in a small religious community. But then something happened, and Arik had to confront a new stigma. And this one was much more difficult to escape. Arik told the story from the TED stage. In the fall of 2014, I was a sophomore in college, and like most college students, I was sexually active. And I generally took precautions to minimize the risk that sex carries. Now, I say generally because I wasn't always safe. It only takes a single misstep before we're flat on the ground, and my misstep is pretty obvious. I had unprotected sex, and I didn't think much of it. Fast forward about three weeks, and it felt like I'd been trampled by a herd of wildebeest. The aches in my body were like nothing I have felt before or since. I would get these bouts of fever and chill. I would reel with nausea, and it was difficult to walk. Being a biology student, I had some prior exposure to disease. And being a fairly informed gay man, I had read a bit on HIV. So to me, it clicked that this was seroconversion, or is it sometimes called acute HIV infection? And this is the body's reaction in producing antibodies to the HIV antigen. It's important to note that not everybody goes through this phase of sickness, but I was one of the lucky ones who did. And I was lucky as in there were these physical symptoms that let me detect the virus pretty early. And I want to show of hands for these next few questions. How many of you in here were aware that with treatment, those with HIV not only fend off AIDS completely, but they live full and normal lives? Y'all are educated. <laughs> How many of you were aware that with treatment, those with HIV can reach an undetectable status, and that makes them virtually uninfectious? Much less. How many of you were aware of the pre- and post-exposure treatments that are available that reduce the risk of transmission by over 90%? So what I want to ask next is this. If we have made such exponential progress in combating HIV, why haven't our perceptions of those with the virus evolved alongside? When you were diagnosed with HIV, who did you tell? Um, I told my best friends who, um, who were very supportive and they were great about it. Um, we kind of had this nice exchange, this dialogue, and that was very affirming. And then I told my roommates, who were also very good friends of mine, and they <laughs> had a very interesting reaction. They, they broke down. They started crying. They were hugging each other. They thought I was going to die in front of them. And at this point, it's been like four or five weeks since infection, all my, um, immediate symptoms were, were gone. Like, so I'm feeling okay, but things started to change with that group of friends. Um, what, what happened? I would just notice little, um, initially it was little things. I, uh, one of my roommates, he would kind of sidestep around me when I was uh, like walking around. He was very peculiar about things that like we had in common that we might touch, like a chair or silverware. Wow. Uh, I would cook large meals for groups of people, and I noticed that my roommates weren't eating anything I'd cooked, and you know that was kind of the the seal on it. Like I knew something had changed, you know, in our friendship. Did you ever ask them why? Did you ever talk to them about it? Yeah, I, I had sat them down um, multiple times, and I even went as far as to get like this pamphlet on um, HIV from one of the local clinics, and you know, explain to them. Um, you know, I'm not a danger to you. You are not at risk um, from infection. I let them know what the transmissible fluids were, um, rates of infection, what they could expect, and still it just persisted. It didn't matter how, how much I tried to sit them down and educate them. There was still this wall that I couldn't breach with them. You know, Ark, I think, I mean, one of the realities is that a lot of people, not just in Louisiana, but all over the U.S., all over the world, 
might be afraid, right? Like like your roommates, they might they might stigmatize it. I, I definitely was coming into that with that knowledge that you know this these are people who might not have my perspective. Well, they definitely don't have my perspective. So I was trying to be as as calm and rational with them, and it and it did highlight that you know this is a problem, and um, even in our age of of easily accessible facts that people still kind of run to that kind of hysteria when confronted with HIV today. You may ask, and I asked this question myself initially, where are these people living with HIV? Why haven't they been vocal? Where are the stories? How can I believe these statistics without seeing the successes? And this is actually a very easy question for me to answer. Fear, stigma, and shame. There is safety in assimilation, and there is safety in invisibility. So I opted for transparency about my status, always being visible. And this is what I like to call being the everyday advocate. The point of this transparency, the point of this everyday advocacy, was to dispel ignorance. And hopefully, if I could spread some education, then I could mitigate situations for others, like I had experienced with my roommates, and save someone else down the line. That humiliation. This is a community-driven stigma that keeps many gay men from disclosing their status, and it keeps those newly diagnosed from seeking support within their own community. And I find that truly distressing. The fear of how others perceive us when we're honest keeps us from doing many things in life, and this is the case for the HIV-positive population. To face social scrutiny and ridicule is the price that we pay for transparency. So you're saying that to remove the stigma around HIV requires more transparency, right? But I mean, I'm sure you know people who are HIV positive, but just aren't, you know, aren't comfortable telling anyone. Yeah, I, I know many, many, many HIV positive men um, and women who who don't tell people, and you know, for good reason, because you know, it's it's a disease of a sexual nature. So by default, there's already something attached to it. Mm. There's a moral question of it. A lot of times they might have stable careers um, that they don't want to jeopardize, or they might be working for conservative people, and that puts them in a very difficult position. And I, I totally understand keeping that to yourself. Um, I really, it's not like I'm trying to set an example that everyone with HIV should just be as open with their status as possible, because it's a very personal choice um, to talk about. But if they do, I want to make that easier for them. Ari Hartman, he's an HIV awareness advocate. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about confronting stigma. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com slash NPR. Thanks also to Simply Safe. Getting a good night's sleep is easier said than done, especially if you hear a noise downstairs. You could turn on all the lights and keep watch, or you can rest easy knowing that your home and family are protected with Simply Safe. Each Simply Safe system is a complete security arsenal. There are no contracts and no hidden fees. Get a special 10% discount when you order today at simplysafe.com/npr. And just one more quick thing. We're asking for your help by telling us what you like and how we might be able to improve our shows by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. It takes just a few minutes, and you'll do all of us here at the TED Radio Hour a huge favor by filling it out. So go to npr.org slash podcast survey. And thanks.
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about confronting stigma. And so far on the show, we've heard about stigmas that we can all more or less agree are kind of damaging and need to be overcome. But this next story might be a bit more challenging because it involves what may possibly be the most stigmatized thing a person can do. Uh, Hi, my name is Juno Mack, and uh, I'm a sex worker and activist in London. Juno thinks that as difficult as it's going to be to destigmatize prostitution, we should, for the safety and security of sex workers. I should be clear as well, I don't, I don't think of my job as an activist for sex worker rights to be in any way a defense of clients purchasing sex, prostitution in general, or the sex industry. Um, I think it's okay to hold a neutral to negative view of those things. It's just uh, you need to be very careful not to be talking about the value or the worth of the people doing it. Juno turned to sex work about a decade ago. She'd been in college and had piled up a lot of debt. I was working in a shop. Uh, I'd moved to London. I had found that I couldn't really, even with some of the financial help students get, I was struggling to keep my head above water. So I ended up dropping out of college and working in a shop for a few years. And I hated that job. Every single month, payday would arrive and by the end it would all be gone. I knew some older girls uh, in my area who'd left left high school and gone on to be strippers. Um, And lots of people spoke about them like they were really worthless or like that was a terrible downward spiral. I just, I never saw it that way. I never considered that. I, I considered it to be highly paid work for something, you know, being remunerated for something that is stigmatized. I observed the stigma then, but I, you know, I've considered it to be their own prerogative, basically. I know for some people, sex work seems like it would be a leap. Um, for me, uh, it was a lot less of a leap. Like it, it, I, I never really felt like uh, it was too strange or bizarre. So I uh, decided I'd uh, start working in like a massage parlor slash brothel uh, in London and that's kind of where I started out. I worked in brothels for a few years and now uh, I'm an escort which is you know just a euphemistic way to say indoor prostitute basically. So, so when you made the decision when you started to work at, at a brothel how difficult was that for you like how emotionally difficult or was it was it not as difficult as you thought it would be? A kind of a mixture of both. There's definitely a sense of self-stigmatization around these things. I I remember after my first day at that brothel looking in the mirror and thinking like, oh, am I different now? Like, Hmm. have I changed? Because back then I completely bought into the idea that prostitution tarnishes someone. That's like the stigma against prostitution very much follows on from this idea that sex can tarnish a woman. You know, that's why women are called sluts and... Like, you know, they're branded as lesser when they sleep around a lot because sex has seemed to kind of tarnish their identity. And for prostitutes, that stigma is tenfold. You know, the idea that you're, you know, bits of you are eroding, you know, you're becoming less. And, you know, lots of people find prostitution sad because, you know, maybe it's not what people wanted to be when they were little girls. That's something you hear over and over again, you know. But, you know, there are a lot of jobs out there that no one wants their daughter doing and no little girls want to do, but that's just not the world we live in. Juno says the moral stigma against sex work doesn't stop it from happening. And it actually makes the work more difficult and dangerous because it compromises the safety of the world's 42 million sex workers, 80% of whom are women. Here's Juno Mack on the TED stage. People get really hung up on the question, or would you want your daughter doing it? That's the wrong question. Instead, imagine she is doing it. How safe is she at work tonight? Why isn't she safer? In the years that have passed, I've had a lot of time to think. I've reconsidered the ideas I once had about prostitution. I've thought about gender inequality and the sexual and reproductive labor of women. 
I've experienced exploitation and violence at work. I've thought about what's needed to protect other sex workers from these things. In this talk, I'm going to take you through the four main legal approaches applied to sex work throughout the world and explain why they don't work, why prohibiting the sex industry actually exacerbates every harm that sex workers are vulnerable to. The first approach is full criminalization. Half the world, including Russia, South Africa, and most of the US, regulate sex work by criminalizing everyone involved, so that's seller, buyer, and third parties. Lawmakers in these countries apparently hope that the fear of getting arrested will deter people from selling sex. But if you're forced to choose between obeying the law and feeding yourself or your family, you're going to do the work anyway and take the risk. Criminalization is a trap. The law forces you to keep selling sex, which is the exact opposite of its intended effect. In many places, you may be coerced into paying a bribe or even into having sex with a police officer to avoid arrest. The second approach is partial criminalization, where the buying and selling of sex are legal, but surrounding activities like brothel keeping or soliciting on the street are banned. And brothel keeping, by the way, is just defined as just two or more sex workers working together. Making that illegal means that many of us work alone, which obviously makes us vulnerable to violent offenders. But we're also vulnerable if we choose to break the law by working together. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine was nervous after she was attacked at work, so I said that she could see her clients from my place for a while. During that time, we had another guy turn nasty. I told the guy to leave or I'd call the police. And he looked at the two of us and he said, you girls can't call the cops. You're working together, this place is illegal. He was right. The prohibition of street prostitution also causes more harm than it prevents. Firstly, to avoid getting arrested, street workers take risks to avoid detection. That means working alone or in isolated locations like dark forests where they're vulnerable to attack. If you're caught selling sex outdoors, you pay a fine. How do you pay that fine without going back to the streets? It was the need for money that saw you on the streets in the first place. And so the fines stack up and you're caught in a vicious cycle of selling sex to pay the fines you got for selling sex. So your basic argument is that there are real world consequences when you when you do stigmatize sex work because it actually it actually makes the problem worse. It actually endangers women even more and makes them vulnerable to predatory, you know, um, uh, managers and clients. Yeah, absolutely. Criminalization and a, and a mistrust of the police is a gift to rapists because it basically tells them you have no recourse to justice. Yeah. So criminalizing sex work in the name of keeping sex workers safe is one of the biggest ironies I can think of. It just it helps the people who wish to exploit us. You know, you know there are a lot of really interesting ideas in your talk and and a lot that I just viscerally disagree with um, for a variety of reasons. I just want to throw some of those at you and kind of get your take because I am open to being convinced. I I, I, I am. I just, it's just very hard Tell to... Tell me what your biggest, strongest emotional response was. Well, I, I mean, I, I just can't help but think of of the women who are in sex work as as by and large people who are exploited. Obviously, there are people who who do it voluntarily, but um, it, it it seems to me that there are lots of people who are uh, who are very vulnerable, and and they are doing it at a vulnerable moment in their lives. You know, I would uh, you know you could speak to other sex workers who would disagree, but I don't think what you just said is stigmatizing. I think as a sex worker activist, the same concern is at the heart of what I try to do. Sex work uh, is is dangerous. The answer isn't to kind of deny that or pretend that's not the case, but to ask why. Why is it dangerous? Um, there are lots of other things that are dangerous for women to do in society as well. I've just been in Cape Town, for example, where it's much more the case that women just do not walk uh, home in the dark or after dusk like why that's it's not a stigmatizing thing to say it doesn't stigmatize the women or the streets they're on particularly but like why can't sex workers feel safer is the question not you know is it safe to say that it's not safe is to speak the truth to my mind um it's when you start to think of people who are in danger or at risk as fundamentally eroded or altered or made lesser because they're at risk 
then that stigma. And to talk about the risks and dangers of sex work is to concern yourself with the conditions of it, not really a statement on the identity of the people who do it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but but to me, I mean, if there were any stigma around this at all, it would it would lie with the clients, not not with the sex workers. Yeah, I mean, I myself have had a pretty dim view of clients over my time as a sex worker. But if you were to say to me, do you know, you know, you have sex for money with these disgusting, horrible, repugnant men, how do you do that? Then it's clear the stigma is sliding off the client and sticking to me. Do you Mm -hmm, see? mm -hmm. Um, That is how stigma works. It contaminates people in a way that I don't think everyone is aware of. So if criminalizing sex workers hurts them, why not just criminalize the people who buy sex? This is the aim of the third approach I want to talk about, the Swedish or Nordic model of sex work law. The idea behind this law is that selling sex is intrinsically harmful, and so you're in fact helping sex workers by removing the option. Despite growing support for what's often described as the end-demand approach, there's no evidence that it works. There's just as much prostitution in Sweden as there was before. Why might that be? It's because the people selling sex often don't have other options for income. If you need that money, the only effect that a drop in business is going to have is to force you to lower your prices or offer more risky sexual services. If you need to find more clients, you might seek the help of a manager. And so you see, rather than putting a stop to what's often described as pimping, a law like this actually gives oxygen to potentially abusive third parties. Something I'm often hearing is, prostitution would be fine if we made it legal and regulated it. We call that approach legalization, and it's used by countries like the Netherlands, Germany, and Nevada in the US. But it's not a great model for human rights. Under state-controlled prostitution, commercial sex can only happen in certain legally designated areas or venues. And sex workers are made to comply with special restrictions like registration and forced health checks. Regulation sounds great on paper, but politicians deliberately make regulation around the sex industry expensive and difficult to comply with. It creates a two-tiered system, legal and illegal work. We sometimes call it backdoor criminalization. Rich, well-connected brothel owners can comply with the regulations, but more marginalized people find those hoops impossible to jump through. And even if it's possible in principle, getting a license or proper venue takes time and costs money. It's not going to be an option for someone who's desperate and needs money tonight. They might be a refugee or fleeing domestic abuse. In this two-tiered system, the most vulnerable people are forced to work illegally, so they're still exposed to all the dangers of criminalization I mentioned earlier. So, sex workers are real people. We've had complicated experiences, but our demands are not complicated. We want full decriminalization and labor rights as workers. No doubt many of you work for a living. Well, sex work is work too. Just like you, some of us like our jobs, some of us hate them. Ultimately, most of us have mixed feelings. But how we feel about our work isn't the point. And how others feel about our work certainly isn't. What's important is that we have the right to work safely and on our own terms. If you could do something else that was like as well paid and uh, and you know didn't didn't mean that you that you did sex work, would you do it? Uh, yeah. I mean, if we just for a second imagine that the activism wasn't a part of my life and like something that I am spending a great deal of my time and energy on, if it was a value neutral thing, then sure, I, I would because sex work is something I do just for the money. I don't think of it as an inherently meaningful thing. It's just. Uh, for me, uh, an economic decision. So for sure, I would swap it out for something that was equally well paid and worked around my lifestyle as well. The fact that I ha- I, I might be able to do that, um, and it hasn't happened yet, I don't think should be ever used as an argument to sweep aside some of the stuff that I've said in this conversation or like that I try to say, because I'm trying to make visible politics that do not just concern me. In fact, I hope to try and draw people's attention to politics that always center the most marginalized people, you know, because there are a lot of people doing sex work around the world in many different nations for whom 
and there is no alternative. And those are the people whose needs should always be being thought of, you know, like what are we going to do to make their work safer? Mm. It doesn't really matter. It's a distraction to think about the fact that some vocal advocates could just do something else. You know, what about the people who can't? It's really key to keep remembering those people. But I can't, I lose track of the amount of time somebody has used that against me in an argument. They've said, you know, it's all very well for you, but what about the truly vulnerable? Right. And I, you know, I, I'm talking about the truly vulnerable and I'm I'm talking about the moments I felt truly vulnerable um, and the things that I shared in common with some of the most vulnerable people in prostitution are the same. It's, we need decriminalization. We need sex workers to be involved in policy discussions. And if they can't be involved in policy discussions, you know, like whatever it is that's holding them back from that need to be addressed. For me, those are my priorities and those are the things I'm working towards. Because why should people be socially outcast for something like that? Gino Mack, she's an activist with the sex work advocacy and resistance movement. You can find her full talk at TED.com. You can't judge apple by looking at a tree. You can't judge honey by looking at the bee. You can't judge a daughter Hey, thanks so much for listening to our show Confronting Stigma this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. And you can listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also write us directly at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org, and you can tweet us. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Oh,